0: In the fog of war, the number of casualties of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is difficult to account. It is safe to say, though, the destruction of cities and infrastructure in Ukraine has been extensive. Targeting of hospitals and schools by Russian troops have come with the cry of war crimes, and the town of Bucha is ground zero for mass graves of Ukrainian civilians. Is Russia committing genocide in Ukraine? Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. Seven weeks and counting since Russia invaded Ukraine, all in the name of denazifying the country. Just over a year ago, Russian troops and equipment began to amass along the border with Ukraine, all in the name of training. Since Russian troops crossed into Ukraine, they have been met with fierce resistance. NATO and European countries have been outraged by the invasion and attack but NATO has not enforced no-fly zone over Ukraine for concern of broadening the conflict. Our unpublished vote question asked you, Does Russia's war on Ukraine amount to genocide? Yes, no, or unsure. And according to our votes, two-thirds feel that is the case. However you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote, and then email your MP to tell them why. Joining us to discuss the question and the latest In the War, John Packer, Professor of International Conflict Resolution at the University of Ottawa's Human Rights Research and Education Center. Eve Engler is a writer with Canadian Dimension. Elliot Tepper is a senior fellow with the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. And Radislav Dimitrov is an Associate Professor in the Department of Polit- Political Science at Western University. And we'll start off with you, John. Who and what determines whether this is genocide?
1: Well, basically, states determine it if we're speaking about uh, the responsibility of a state. So there's, two, there's a basic distinction we need to make right off the bat. Are we talking about uh, an individual human being, you or me, who might be uh, accused of committing genocide? And that has to be determined uh, normally by a court of law. Uh, because uh, we're all human beings and we all have our human right to be presumed innocent to a right to be tried before an independent, partial judiciary and and so forth. Uh, And uh, so it's hard, you you know, we can uh, allege and accuse and we do all the time. We say so-and-so is uh, President Putin is committing genocide, but actually he would have to be tried. Uh, But as for a state, Uh, that's actually not the case. It's not possible to try a state, uh, prosecute a state. That's not what happens. And states actually technically don't commit crimes. Uh, The issue is whether the state is responsible in international law. And here we have 152 states parties to the Genocide Convention 1948. And Russia and Ukraine are both parties to it. Uh, And uh, it's other states that make that determination. Uh, It may or may not come before a court of law, depending on whether states have agreed uh, for example, Article Nine of the Genocide Convention. Uh, but irrespective of it coming before a court of law, uh, all states are actually supposed to make that assessment. And you might have noticed that some states ha- have done that with regard to other genocides.
0: Uh, Eve, you, you you call this a proxy war. How do you see it that way?
2: Well, first of all, the war didn't start on February twenty fourth when Russia uh, invaded in obvious contravention of international law. There had been a war for eight years, which flowed out of a U.S.-Canada-backed uh, overthrow of an elected uh, president, uh, where uh, the Canadian embassy in uh, in Kiev was actually used as a safe haven by opposition protesters for more than a week in the uh, culmination of the protests that ousted uh, Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, that's a violation of, of international law in terms of... Uh, uh, Canada violating Ukrainian sovereignty, um, and uh, Canada then went to uh, building up a, a uh, Ukrainian military that was fighting a war in the east of the country uh, that left about fourteen thousand people dead before uh, Russia's invasion. Uh, alongside that, of course, is the bringing uh, Ukraine into NATO and, and making the Ukrainian military interoperable with NATO. Uh, the expansion of NATO eastward after uh, the end of the Cold War, uh, the promises made to, to Gorbachev about not expanding one inch uh, eastward. And now there's Canadian troops uh, uh, in in Latvia. So, so, yeah, Russia's invasion is clearly illegal, um, but the Canadian US governments pursued all kinds of policies that ra- ratcheted up tensions that uh, uh, basically created a context where the militarists in in Russia responded to the uh, NATO provocations with their uh, you know very brutal uh, brutal ways and and it's unfortunately Ukrainians that have been uh, the primary victims.
0: Elliot this war has a lot of similarities between the winter war of 39 uh, between Finland and, and
3: Russia do you see it that way? Yes there's uh, let's say an immediate parallel to the winter wars I mean, We'd have to go back the history to that but it was a case where Imperial Russia <laughs> invaded, and Finland and Finland fought them off successfully. It was—it's kind of a a mythic prototype or archetype for this. But beyond that, there's other analogies. The Winter War, of course, is heavy on the minds of of all parties immediately involved at the moment. But the broader case is: what other historical precedents are there? Where history doesn't repeat itself, but it's—you know—it's instructive. It reminds a lot of people, including me, of the situation just before the First World War where a lot of posturing went on and a lot of maneuvering and everybody thought, well, there might be a short war and things piled onto each other and spiraled out of control. And we got the horrors of the First World War as a result. The Second World War was somewhat the same thing. You know, Hitler certainly wouldn't go any farther if you just give him this, give him that. So a lot of people I think are drawing, particularly in Europe, within Europe, uh, back to that more immediate experience where nothing could stop once this process was put in motion. So on the one hand, um, yes, there's an immediate precedent uh, that's on the minds of the locally. And also we have the situation of things can spiral out of control, even if you don't want them to. And that's certainly on everybody's minds. Plus the more recent, Example, which I think is weighing very heavily on the decisions and practices we're seeing now coming out of Europe of the Second World War. Radislav,
0: uh, as Elliot pointed out, this seems to be widening as well. Finland and Sweden now want to join NATO. Russia has threatened to invade Poland next, and by doing that, if you know, at this point we can't tell. He's invaded Ukraine, and you could
4: do that as well. Would that not lead to NATO getting involved in this? I think it is very likely. Um I think that um, many analysts were surprised by the relatively relatively moderated response by NATO um, and, and the West in general to the invasion of Ukraine. Um, and I think that uh, everybody's uh, watching extremely closely to see whether Ukraine is just the first step to something else. And I think that the slightest maneuver in another direction by Russia that is also aggressive against another country, will provoke a much, much stronger NATO reaction. Um, I think that uh, Finland's move makes perfect sense. Um, And um, if Sweden and Finland both join NATO, um, that will, interestingly, I think, strengthen the preparedness of NATO to react very strongly in a military uh, manner against the invasion of any other country.
0: Uh, Radoslav, I'm wondering, with Finland and Sweden now wanting to join NATO, um, is that provoking or is that, uh, as, as you've mentioned, provoking Russia, or is that
4: you know, setting up their defense for themselves? Um, I think that we can expect Russia to act, to react in a provoked manner. They would, they could ramp up some rhetoric that there's some hostile, um, there's some hostile behavior by their uh, neighbors, Uh, but I think that perfectly, Finland is perfectly justified with with this move. Uh, I do not think that this is going to change whatever plans Russia has. Um, It is not sufficiently provocative. Um, I do acknowledge that um, Russia was quite correct to react negatively in the 1990s to a number of decisions uh, that the United States and Western Europe made regarding NATO. Um, It is well known that uh, NATO did make some promises to Russia that they broke. Um, It was a matter of negotiations and Russia received guarantees, for instance, that uh, NATO is not going to position any anti-ballistic missiles in countries that are immediately adjacent to Russia. NATO indeed install such um, missiles in Poland. And so, and this was just a series of, um, you know, several sort of lies, quite frankly. Um, and I think that Russia at the time in the 1990s was quite justified to feel mistrust for NATO and to feel uh, betrayed and that NATO uh, cannot really be trusted. Uh, but now the situation is somewhat different, um, and Finland's move is an important one. Uh, Eve,
2: how do you see the move by Finland? I mean, I think NATO should be disbanded. Uh, so I think any addition to NATO is a bad thing. I mean, NATO—if you look at the history of NATO—you uh, know—it was used to uh, prop up European colonialism in Africa and Asia in the 1950s, and Canada provided huge amounts of weapons gave huge amounts of weapons to the french as they suppressed the algerian independence movement uh, that goes on into uh, the portuguese in the 1970s in uh, in angola and mozambique um you know nato is the preeminent uh, uh, aggressive military entity in the world you know bombing of libya in 2011 Former Yugoslavia and late 90s, 1999, Afghanistan, on and on and on. Um, and, and I think that it's a, it's it's a real um, uh, kind of, I would say a kind of odd to say that NATO, NATO's at war in Ukraine today, let's be clear, right? The Americans are boasting about killing Russian generals. Uh, we have a Canadian general, who uh, four-star general, who apparently uh, uh, left the Canadian military on April fifth, and then he's in he's in the Ukraine. Uh, we have you know hundreds of former Canadian soldiers in the Ukraine. We have Canada boasting about you know training uh, thirty-three thousand Ukrainian forces fighting. Uh, uh, we have you know front page of the Global Mail today about Canadian weapons blowing up uh, uh, Russian tanks. Uh so so you know this is, I mean, in, in Canada, the US's case, we're talking about what is it, we six, seven thousand kilometers away. This is on Russia's border. I mean, who is the who if you look at the geopolitical context, who is the aggressive force? Clearly, the aggressive force, the belligerent force at a at a macro geopolitical level is. Washington and Ottawa. And, and, there's a, and there's a long history, right? I mean, Canada invaded Russia. Let's not forget that Canada invaded Russia in, in 1917, 1918, 1919. You go back to the Crimean War, Canadians fought in the mid-1800s uh, with, with, the, with the British. Um, uh, you know, Canada, you know, refused relations with Russia through the 1920s. Uh, then there's the Cold War. Then then you have, you know, Chrétien, right? When he, Jean Chrétien takes office, you know, he starts pushing NATO expansion eastward and you read the articles from that time in the globe and Mail and major newspapers. they're clear that the Russians view this as a threat. And that continues on until two thousand eight, where Stephen Harper uh, backs uh, you know the expansion of NATO into into Ukraine uh, at the famous two thousand and eight summit, where the French and the Germans at least have the good sense to uh, to to oppose that you know belligerent uh, move. So, you know, Canada is at the center of this NATO alliance that has been waging war all around the world uh, for you know 70 years now. and and no, I don't think Finland joining NATO. yeah, Finland joining NATO will be good for the. Uh, US military- industrial complex which Canadian firms are, are tied into. Uh, is it good for humanity? Definitely not.
0: Uh, John, uh, Turkey is in a very unique position as mediator, with its economic dependence on Russia and and signing military agreements with Ukraine, as well as a member of, of NATO. How are they walking that tightrope?
1: It, it's a uh, tightrope they have to uh, obviously navigate very carefully, or, or walk very carefully. Uh, but if you allow me just to to react there to Eve. Uh, uh, sorry, because that's, I mean, he he got mm-hmm. close to at the end just saying, look, it's a game. He, he doesn't like capitalism. Uh, but let's look at the world in very simple terms. And uh, Antonio Guterres, the, the Secretary General of the United Nations, made it very clear. And uh, Foreign Minister of Russia, Lavrov, had to absolutely agree. There are some pretty stark facts here. There are no NATO troops in Russia, on Russian soil, and the opposite is true. Uh, there, And if we're going to start talking the about British the, press, world, the British press, British press is reporting on the ground. Eve, I sat listening to you uh, through all of that. Uh, what about the Wagner Group? What about Syria? We could go on and on. I work in a lot of different parts of the world. Uh, the, the very basic facts here. Uh, Finland and Sweden do not want, nobody wants to join the Russian Federation. Sorry. Uh, and let's not start at 2014. How about 2008 and the, intervention, the so-called peacekeeping in uh, Abkhazia and so forth. So, no, this is this is a bit ridiculous to say very plainly, the breach, even before Westphalian paradigm here, before 1648, very simple breach is Russia is the aggressor and has actually launched a war, which they were already fighting before. That's not to say that there were no pretextual or antecedent elements here and so forth. But let's be very clear what's actually happened. The only actors that have threatened multiple times now, multiple times of nuclear weapons and so forth, are the Russians. So let's be really clear about that. Now, okay. Now, in terms of the Turks, the Turks are in a very difficult situation. Their largest trading partner is Russia. Uh, They're totally dependent on natural gas uh, of Russia. Uh, And not only Russia, but also Russia controlled Turkmenistan, natural gas. And so, you know, don't forget Russia has its own uh, you know, near abroad, as they call it, and in their instrumental uh, uh, controls and effects, which are exploited for financial gain, by the way, directly for the oligarchs and others. So, uh, you know, it's Putin who has a $700 million uh, uh, yacht. You know, it's it's not uh, it's not the president of Finland or the president of Ukraine. So uh, the the Turks here are trying to figure out how do they keep a lid on this? And not just from a security, but an economic perspective and a potential spillover, which will be huge. Don't forget there are also Turks- in Russia and Ukraine. The Crimean Tatars are Turks. And, uh, and uh, in you, you, uh, sorry, in Russia, there are many Turks, Tatarstan, among others. There are all sorts of relations here. So Turkey has, correctly in my view, uh, expressed a cautionary note about the NATO enlargement of Finland and Sweden. These things, a lot of big decisions are being made in very quick succession here with considerable geostrategic uh, implications. And there have been elements uh, that are you know this did not come out of nowhere or overnight uh, there are issues about uh, uh, about conduct in the donbass and so forth and so you know calming it down taking things a little bit more carefully i think the turks are actually not without a measured basis of of policy here like they're trying to to actually bring parties together and actually take some of the heat out of the conflict and bring it down because this is right now escalating the whole thing is escalating and the risk of escalation is enormous. And uh, and when I say enormous, it is not an exaggeration to talk about thermonuclear war.
0: Uh, Elliot, let's I, I talk about well, we're still talking about about NATO, but Sweden and, and Finland want wanting in, and that, that, that's a that's a seismic change for them um, because they they wanted to be neutral for so long.
3: 200 years for Sweden. Uh, the New Europe is emerging in front of us and this war and Mr. Putin is the father of a new Europe in a way it's a rejuvenation of going back. The new Europe that we see emerging is uh, at this moment because of Finland and Sweden joining after long uh, central to their identity in the world has been their neutrality and now they're joining, but that's just one component of a much broader process. Uh, NATO's processes themselves internally are going to be reexamined so that it's not merely reactive. Uh, the decoupling of Russia from both the financial and the trading arrangements of the world—that's going to continue. Right now, the big debate inside the EU is whether they can, in fact, get off oil and gas altogether, boycott the only major source of income that Russia has. So there's going to be a reorganization of the organizations themselves that were put in place to kept the peace, keep the peace that failed to do so in this case. There's a lot of major rethinking going on. Uh, Radislav, do you expect that, or suspect that,
0: that this conflict is going to broaden across other borders?
4: At this point, I would be surprised if it happens. Um, I doubt that Russia is, would be so unwise Uh, to go beyond the current uh, operations in Ukraine. I would be truly surprised. Um, I I do think that um, I was very interested by the implicit uh, debate uh, that ensued earlier. Um, I do think that we have to have a more balanced perspective on what is happening. On the one hand, it is very clear that Russia's aggression is unjustified. You know, this is a very clear-cut aggression against a sovereign country. There's no question about that. Um, but I think that if we try to... So, so if we put things in comparative perspective, if we must put things in comparative perspective, um, I think that the um, actions of the United States, for instance, um, in the past decades, uh, and are at a magnitude of un- unacceptability that is considerably bigger than what Russia has done recently. Um, of course, nothing excuses what Russia does. But I just think that it is also wise to, to acknowledge the fact that whatever they do, they do it in their backyard. They're protecting their regional interests. As a great power, and they are a superpower after all, um, it is not surprising to political scientists to see that they are, uh, you know, very assertively protecting their regional interests in their sphere of influence. Are, are they a
0: superpower because they have nuclear weapons?
4: Yes, they are. Yes. they are so superpower the, for a number of reasons. Reason. They have nuclear weapons. They have uh, an incredibly large portion of uh, the world's uh, fuels. Um, They have a vast territory, they have a a vast population, a lot of resources, etc., etc. And they they do have nuclear weapons. And it is not surprising to any international relations specialist to see a superpower uh, flexing its muscles in its regional sphere of influence. That is very different from the uh, operations in Afghanistan and Iraq that the United States has engaged in on another continent across the world. And I think there's a a tremendous complacency and arrogance uh, displayed in U.S. uh, uh, discourse, assuming that somehow the United States has the right to treat the entire world as its sphere of influence. And then as soon as somebody else does anything in that category, oh, my God, the outrage. It just doesn't. (laughs) Um, okay, I, I I understand your perspective.
0: Yeah. I understand your perspective. Is that what you see?
2: Yeah, I see that and and some. I mean, uh, look what's going on in Yemen. Four hundred thousand people dead. About one hundred fifty thousand. These are estimates, of course. One hundred fifty thousand direct killings by the Saudi-led. Canadian-fueled American overseen uh, uh, war, and 250,000 because of the blockade and all kinds of other human suffering that that comes out of that. That that far surpasses uh, what's happened in the Ukraine. And if you look, and I've done this, I looked at, I, I found one, uh, one national post a couple of weeks ago, one Saturday national post that had as many articles in that single issue of the paper as they devoted to Yemen over seven years. right? There are worthy and unworthy victims. Those who our allies are killing are unworthy victims to our media. The worthy victims are those who are being killed by our enemies, be that in this case Russia, sometimes China, sometimes Iran, whoever is in the crosshairs of, 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 uh, of Washington. And, and, you know, it's not just Yemen. I mean, look at American bombings all around the world, right? I mean, bombing, they regularly bomb Somalia still. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're bombing Syria. They look at Israel just yesterday, Israel bombing Syria again. Israel's bombed Syria on a weekly basis. There's no coverage in our media about this Israel violating international law in Syria on a weekly basis. Um, and Canada is aligned. Let's be very clear with this. Canada is aligned with the U.S. empire around the world. The Canadian military is setting up, has set up bases in Jamaica, in in, uh, Germany, uh, negotiating in Senegal, uh, in uh, in, uh, a couple other places to align with the American empire, to have more, uh, one in uh, Kuwait, of course, for the operations in Iraq to align with the US empire. So Canada, the Canadian military is completely integrated into the American uh, uh, war machine. That is the primary uh, uh, source of violence and instability uh, around the world. So any, any sense of like moral high ground that we have Yes, what it, what Russia is doing is horrible. It's clear violation of international law. It's horrible for Ukrainians. It, it, it's horrible for it's not just horrible for Ukrainians. The the cost of food and the exports of grains and that's having an effect all around the world for the the poorest of the poor in in the global south. That, that's you know that's horrible. It's horrible from the standpoint of dealing with our major uh, cl- you know crisis the world faces, which is the climate crisis. That's being completely put aside because of this war. This is this is horrible all around. But any sense of the moral high ground by Washington and Ottawa about on what's going on? I mean, you know, give me a break. Uh,
0: John, uh, Well, we talked about earlier about uh, some of the threats of, uh, towards Poland, denazifying, you're next on the list. Uh, Canada and, and Russia share a fair amount of land with uh, the north, shall we say. And, you know, uh, it's not like Justin Trudeau hasn't been a little bit provocative. I and mean, what he said about uh, Vladimir Putin? Do you expect anything else, any comments uh, to come from Putin or Russia or anything like that?
1: Well, it's a funny thing about the the North. Actually, Canada uh, and Russia have had uh, longstanding, uh, fairly good cooperation with regard to the Arctic. Uh, And uh, and I I believe the Secretary to the Arctic Council, I think it's in Oslo. um, I understand that the representation works uh, very um, well together. There's a lot of shared interests. There's also contestation. Let's not forget uh, what we show on our maps as Canada is actually contested territory, and not only with Russia, also the United States of America, which believes that uh, those are uh, international waters. For example, uh, we have a problem with Denmark. We got a problem with Spain over the, the, the seas, and and so forth. So, um, but those are all the key point here. Is those are all managed in uh, within the bounds. Of, of the normative framework of contemporary international law. We don't invade each other. We don't. Uh, and, and so what's happened here, and, you know, with all the, frankly, moral equivalencies that we're, we're being just articulated, look, let me let me be very clear. What, what happened just a week or two ago when the Americans sent, uh, uh, Kurt Campbell sent for the White House uh, representative for uh, senior advisor on Asia to Solomon Islands to try and tell a sovereign state that they could not choose, exercise their sovereign jurisdiction to choose which other states they would allow, for example, ships to dock in and so forth, which was to say an agreement with China Uh, and uh, on the fear, the prospect that there might be a defense alliance and the Americans are essentially threatening Little Solomon Islands 7,500 miles away from USA. So I totally appreciate the point that's being made about Russia discussing its neighbors with, you know, highly armed, uh, you know, it's all in the eye of the beholder perceptions and so forth. But, uh, but again, to the moral equivalence, as bad as uh, I, I was legal advisor to the UN Special Envoy in Yemen for two years, for example. I can tell you quite a lot about the situation in Yemen and, you know, the role of the Americans and the Brits who have armed the Saudis to the teeth, who have spent billions and billions of dollars dropping bombs on absolutely innocent persons uh, and... and widespread breaches of international law, humanitarian law, and so forth. Uh, but, you know, it's not its not a, a breach of the fundamental rule of the territorial sovereignty of the state, and it's not a genocide. And, and these are kind of cornerstones of the, of the contemporary period. 1945, 1948, we drew a couple lines in the sand, you know. and Elliot was referring to this. Ended, what was the consensus at the end of the Second World War? And this was worked out in place at Yalta and elsewhere. And they said, you know what? There's a few hard lines here, and we're going to basically respect the sovereign territorial jurisdiction of each other. That's a Westphalian idea in sovereign equality. And we're going to link it with something else, the non-use of force to determine this specifically over such things as territorial matters. That's what Russia has breached and the Genocide Convention, which is a correlate because that was really linked to the second world war which it used to be that what you did within your jurisdiction over people in the territory of the state was kind of your own business that's what chamberlain said in 38 you know and and in 45 we said no it's not anymore what the state the state has a duty to all human rights within the state and specifically in 48 we drew a hard line and we said you cannot go after a part of your population or a part of another population that's the issue here two pretty big you know, glowing in red lights issues here about Russia. And that's what the president of Finland said to Putin directly on telephone. He said, you did this. You you know, we were it was difficult, but we were trying to work things with a lot of problems on a lot of sides. But you breached two basic lines. And that's the issue now. Uh,
0: Elliot. Obviously, it seems Russia is a pariah, at least in the eyes of the West. Uh, as for other places, I'm not sure. And in, in the eyes of China, was uh, Russia? are they a little concerned about Russia's actions right now?
3: Of course, I've been watching this rather closely, being an Asian studies guy myself. The Chinese undoubtedly are watching what's happening and the reaction to it. Uh, you and I have discussed this over a long period of time. China is the clear beneficiary right now of everything that's going on because nobody's talking about China anymore and organizing NATO had brought China into focus and the world was now going to finally organize to deal with uh, Xi Jinping's wolf warrior diplomacy in an emergent China. And suddenly we're back talking about what? A land war in Europe, uh, an aggressive power invading a neighbor. So they clearly, by diversion alone, are, are benefactories, but the beneficiary of this. And also they win if... Um, Mr. Putin succeeded in his original plans to change the geostrategic situation in Europe then this uh, this uh, alliance without end without borders that exists between China and Russia they decided they declared this on February 4th uh, that would be a weakening of the west and all the forces that might be in existence to oppose China. but if Russia loses then uh, China basically has a vassal state with enormous resources uh, dependent on. On Russia, so they are doing well. I've been watching Japan, it, it's uh, so Japan is watching China watch Russia, <laughs> and so, which is uh, makes perfect sense from, from their view. Mm. The Japanese, like, and this is what I talked about in the New Europe, uh, it's not just a New Europe. The Japanese and the Germans are both basically abandoning their post Second World War peace constitutions, they are rearming. Uh, Germany's U-turn on this has been as almost astonishing as Finland and Sweden and their change of behavior as a result of the invasion. So this invasion is reshaping geopolitics in a variety of ways. Taiwan is being uh, very closely watched by everybody, and certainly the Taiwanese are watching. What lessons the Chinese are learning is that if you brandish nuclear weapons, you can do anything uh, or... You know, you can be made a pariah state within eight days. It would take a little longer for China. And it's harder to decouple China from the world than it is Russia. But there's a lot of concern, I suspect, inside China as to how this is going to come out and what role they're going to play. And certainly, again, Japan and South Korea and Taiwan democracies are watching this as well. Uh, Radislav, there's, uh, you know, nobody wants this war to continue.
0: An off-ramp needs to happen somewhere. Um, how do you see an off-ramp for Vladimir Putin in this? Can you repeat the question, please? I couldn't hear you properly. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I'm sorry about that. How how do you see uh, an an off-ramp being offered to Vladimir Putin to put an end to this?
1: That is a
4: difficult question. Um, I am not sure that an offer has to be made. I think that... um, Very uh, clear signals have to be made about the negative consequences of further aggression. Um, I'm not sure that it is carrots that we need to be uh, offering here. Mm. Um, I think that um, one major reason, fundamental reason, why Russia uh, engaged in this is to send a political signal. It's political messaging. That they will assert themselves in their region, that they will not stand there uh, letting anybody else do whatever it is that they want, you know, close to its borders. Um, it is really uh, an assertion of an image of a powerful nation. Um, and I think that if the West wants to contain that kind of behavior, part of the formula has to be to. Ironically, give the respect that Russia wants.
0: And what kind um, of respect?
4: Like, like in terms of respect, you know, you've invaded a sovereign nation. I don't know how much na- how much respect yes. you'll get. That's right. That's very difficult. But there are other ways to signal that other you know but there are other ways for countries to signal that they you know do respect non- uh, Russia as a superpower. Uh, that they will be more sensitive to highly controversial maneuvers uh, that threaten Russia. Um, and um I think that you have to understand that Russia is a nation with a very fundamental inferiority complex. What's that come from? Y- you can trace it back centuries ago. Hmm. You know, they emulated the French court. They introduced French as the official language of the Russian court or aristocracy. Try to be sophisticated, try to be cultured, try to be more European. Um, it is a fundamental inferiority complex. And the way to treat a person, an individual like that, as well as a nation is to soothe their ego a little bit, to help them have some more self-esteem that is going to tone down that, that kind of behavior uh, that goes into extremes sometimes. Um, and so I think that, again, I clear, my opinion is that Russia's actions are not justified. They are unprovoked aggression. There's no excuse for that. But I think that in the long term, if the world wants peace with Russia, they have to give them a healthy measure of respect that will sort of boost their ego a little bit, satisfy you know that desperate need for attention and respect. Well,
0: uh, a very uh, exciting discussion here uh, on uh, Unpublished TV. I want to thank our guests today. Uh, John Packer, Professor International Conflict Resolution with University of Ottawa's Human Rights Research and Education Center. Eve Angler, he's a writer with Canadian Dimension. Elliot Tepper is a senior fellow with the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University and Radoslav Dimitrov, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science at Western University. Coming up on the next Unpublished Cafe, we'll uh, take a look at the latest with the Ontario election. Thanks for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.